Welcome to the Eric Schlein Podcast, where personal development platitudes can get the hell out. Completely devoted to ontology, breaking down distinctions of human consciousness as an access to enhancing performance. Here's your host, Eric Schlein. with john king john welcome to the show thank you eric it's a real pleasure to see you again yeah for sure so where are you right now in that beautiful background for those who can see on youtube well i'm suffering through the dead of winter in ajijic mexico which is just south of guadalajara on the shores of beautiful lake chapala sounds terrible man horrible yeah horrible. it's brutal but yeah I see like you suffering a, right now yeah dead of winter 71 degrees all the yeah. doors are out. Same temperature inside and outside of the house. Yeah, and I, I see uh, your book behind you. Uh huh. Nice little branding there. Mm-hmm. So it's been a while since you wrote Tribal Leadership. When was that? Like 2008, something like that? Uh, I probably wrote it in 2008-9. It was published, I believe, in 11. It's been out there for 10 years. All right. It still and- sells, doesn't it? it? Still sells copies? Actually, it still sells quite a bit. It's considered, it's in the top 20 of all leadership books all time. Yeah, that's great. And if you look, the hardback is probably ranked about number 50. Mm-hmm. And the soft cover book, which was the forward, was written by Tony Shea of Zappos. And uh, it's probably around number 20, 18, somewhere like that. Since his death, did, did book sales spike because of that? Or no, I don't no? think it had any impact. I didn't check, but, but yeah. uh, you know, I, all I did was just feel bad that uh, that young, brilliant talent was, went away so soon. Do they know what happened? Like the real story, what happened? He was in a fire. That's oh, was all that? I know. Yeah, it was, he was in Connecticut. There was a fire in the house, and somehow he didn't make it. He was taken to the hospital in critical condition, and then he expired. Did they know how the fire fire happened? Because he was like trapped like a warehouse or like something, right? I don't know. They, there's no public conversation about it so far. Yeah. Well, that I know. Maybe I'll find out about it later. I cannot remember the last time there's been such tremendous like public grief for an executive dying. Yeah. Well, he was a genius. Yeah. And he was, a, you know, here was a guy that when he, by the time he was 26 years, first of all, master's degree from Harvard in uh, computer science and then comes out of there, writes an algorithm that creates a whole area of software that by the age of 26, he sells for $238 million, I believe to Google. Mm-hmm. And then sits around and goes, well, you know, what do I do with the rest of my life? Living in San Francisco and he and about eight or nine friends took on the challenge of uh, selling shoes over the internet because they it was told to them that they couldn't do it. So They got a guy named Fred who was from Seattle and who knew about shoes. And he and his partner, Alfred, who had been his roommate in college, they formed a little company and they were in a little Victorian in San Francisco and uh, they were selling shoes. It's named Zappos. The Spanish word for shoe is Zapatos. So it's a contraction of Zapatos, Zappos. And they came up with our product as service. And they started doing it, and it grew to a point where within a short time, within a year, I believe, they realized that they had to take it to a place that was a 24-hour place. So they went right outside of Las Vegas at Henderson in an industrial park, and they built a, they had maybe 400 employees at that time in Vegas, and they had about 400 employees in their delivery, which was in Lexington, Kentucky. They had a delivery warehouse that they built and designed state-of-the-art, literally across the alley from UPS. Yeah, I think it was UPS or DHL, one of the two. So anything, everything came out. And their promise and their offer was, you know, that you could return anything. 
And uh, their, their promise was that you would get everything within five days and then you always got it the next day. So it was always this nice surprise and it came with an already filled out return sheet so that if you wanted to send it back, you put it right in the same box and tape it up and put the, the label that is already that they had already filled out for you on top and uh, give it back to whoever it is, UPS or whatever. And it went back, no postage, no charge for shipping. And they trained their staff in Henderson, which was the call center, to just talk to you about what you were interested in around shoes. And they had people that were interested in all kinds of things. And they ran three shifts. So it was 24 hours a day. The first time I went through there was 1030 in the morning. They tell the people and train the people, just be friends with them, talk about them. It's not about closing them. It's not about selling them. It's no pressure, whatever, whatever, whatever. But it was 1030 in the morning. I was going through. And as I heard a kind of conga line going through with people in costumes, dancing and taking a kind of a little dance break through the whole place and kind of making everybody laugh and everything. But I looked up on the wall. There was a clock said 1030. And there was a sign that was an updating sign that said sales since midnight. So they tracked since midnight every day. And at 10.30 in the morning, they had already done $23 million in sales. Genius, genius, genius. And Amazon tried to go straight, you know, mano a mano against him, couldn't do it. Uh, so eventually, after about four years, they made uh, them a nice offer of over a billion dollars for the ownership of Zappos. So it became a subset of Amazon. However, the deal was that nothing changed. They ran it themselves. It was kind of like... Uh, Warren Buffett's model, right. and they they ran it, and he took about eight hundred thousand dollars of that billion dollars and distributed it amongst the people who worked in the company. Mm. So you know, people who work there are to the death are you know loyal to the company and the brand and so on. Now, when did you first meet him, Tony Shea? I met him in Las Vegas. There was a guy named uh, Robbie Richmond who had worked with me and my partner. And then he went to Las Vegas and he interviewed and he got a job. And then the next thing you know, he was kind of the director of leadership training and development, introduced them to our book. Tony liked the book. They made the book kind of not required reading, but passed it out and invited people to read all the employees to read the book. Tribal leadership. Tribal leadership. And then when you came through, if you came through to do a tour, they gave you a copy, a hard copy of of tribal leadership. And so we were invited over there, went over there, talked to them, met with them. And out of that formed a kind of a partnership with them. And they sponsored us to do the audio copy. And so we did an audio version of the book and we worked with them for about two and a half years or so. Was he on the audio book? I feel like he did like an introduction on the audiobook. I actually don't know. My partner, Dave Logan, did the audiobook. Okay. Uh, it was just easier not to <laughs> resist what he wanted. Yeah, no, I hear you. So you meet Tony. Sh- well, what was he like when you met him? I mean, could you tell he was a genius right from the start? Yeah, he didn't show up as a genius as like a towering intellect. Okay. What he showed up was as a genius in his sociability. He was a guy who was young and he was attractive and he was very likable. You wanted to be around. He had, he had learned the lesson of have people want to be around you. Yeah. So he he was that. And uh, he constantly was acknowledging the people that work for him and he had constant invitations for him. So for example, after work, if he went somewhere, I could go over to the Mandalay Bay and be sitting at the bar and he'd say, I'm at, I'm at the bar at Mandalay Bay. Anybody who shows up, I'll buy you a drink, that sort of thing. Or I'm at Batista's, which is an Italian, you know, restaurant. And you're hungry and like a little Italian food, come on over and, uh, you know, have dinner with me. So on Sunday mornings, he liked to go out rock climbing. You know, he would say, I'm here. And people would show up and they'd go rock climbing together. So he created community. He created tribe. And he just kind of kept nurturing that. He was the guy who uh, created and, and was the main sponsor of the first uh, Las Vegas Marathon, which was held in huge sleet storm, but they had about 16,000 people running. 
And then he provided the wraps, you know, the kind of the, I don't know what you would call them, but they're kind of a, a lightweight blanket knitted to have Zappos on it. Or, or if you check out at the airport in the bottom of your little checkout bin where you put your computer, there was a Zappos piece of paper there. And he just got completely into the community and, and kept building it. And finally, he uh, he bought the uh, the sheriff's station downtown. Downtown was very run down. And so he bought the sheriff's station downtown and he expanded it all and made it his headquarters and so on like that and then started the process of really building up downtown. So there's a huge, for example, there's a huge zip line in downtown Las Vegas where you can get on the zip line and tie in and you could go for about two miles. And it is fabulous. And so he had the zip line put in. And he was just that kind of a guy, very, very community-oriented, very engaged in the question of what are we building together and then going and building something. What would you say is the most important thing or most interesting thing that you learned from him? Oh, I just got to completely validated and reinforced in the idea of, of uh, community and tribes. Yeah. I don't think he ever uh, really got as far as triad. Okay. But he was doing them kind of on the natch, but not really consciously and not really working it out, even though there was a, there's a, it, it is mentioned in the book a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. They wrote the text and he really didn't understand triads. very well, much. I'd say my, you know, I wish there was more on triads in the tribal leadership book. It's, it's, I think it's, well, I'm writing a new book. You'll be happy to hear. Oh, cool. And it's called tribal triads. Okay. And the subtitle is the geometry of power partnership. Uh, but it's about the geometry of all of that. How far into it are you right now? I'm actually have it, the structure of it laid out. Okay. And I'm very close to starting to write. Is this through Harper, uh, Harper's Collins again? Or? Oh, this, I'm writing the book, you know, first shot at publishing it, but I'm not, yeah. I'm not married to Harper Collins. Uh, okay. I found that Harper Collins is a prestigious name. However, I will say that in the two previous books that I've been associated with, the coaching revolution and tribal leadership. I haven't really particularly noticed that it's a major advantage to have a publisher that they didn't really provide. Who really worked was a literary agent that we had. She was okay. fabulous. Was she with with them? Or was that a separate? No, 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 no. She's a separate. She's her own thing, and she's a his woman is amazing. She actually was the uh, producer of Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. Joseph Campbell is a bug name in mythology and so on like right. that. How, how did you she, get linked up with her? We found her and then went and basically begged her. <laughs> are you going to use her again for this book? I would use her anytime. She is so incredibly good. I would use her anytime. But I'm not really kind of engaged in the idea of where we're going to go with the book. And we're in a different age. We're in a digital age. You can kind of self-publish and put it out. Mm-hmm. You know, so... I'm, uh, the idea is let, let's get the, let me just get the story down in a coherent way. I'm working with another guy, but well, the two of us get it down. And he's a guy that's very, very skilled in the realm of tribes as well. His name is Brett Labitte. Okay. And, and Brett is, has his own organization outside of me. It's called Thriving Tribes. And it's about startups and supporting people to, to be effective doing startups. So uh, we're a good fit, and we uh, really, really like each other. So we're going to work together on this. Cool. So is that your only project right now that you're working on? Or are you doing anything No, else? I'm, I'm currently teaching uh, a tribal leadership program, and I'm doing it over Zoom. It's a six-week course uh, with a six-week advanced course follow-up. And I'm, I've got about 200 bankers that are involved, and it's being broadcast to Uzbekistan. So I do it on Thursday nights at 10 to 11.30 at night, which is 9 to 10.30 in the morning, Friday morning in Tashkent, Uzbekistan. And it's translated directly into Russian and into Uzbek and then translated back into English for me. So I have my own translator. And then there's two other translators. And it's highly interactive. So we do a lot of talking back and forth. And it's highly participatory. So there's a lot of them being in breakout rooms and talking about ideas. And so so just let's step back for a sec. Uzbekistani bankers. What, how did you connect to Uzbekistan and bankers in Uzbekistan? You said, uh, you well, said I, it very I, casually. 
Uzbekistan is one of the countries in Central Asia that was a Soviet client state. Mm -hmm. And in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. And so the Russians went away, who had been kind of proto-Soviet, so to speak, Mm -hmm. were left with, well, what do we do now? And so what happened is, at that point, the people who were running things, the people who were 35 and 40 years old, and running things were in such shock, they did nothing. And their children were 10, 11, 12 years old growing up. When their kids got up into their 20s, what happens is they educated themselves. So many of them went for advanced degrees in finance, economics, business, things of that nature. And I teach in a leadership academy for Central Asia. There's 10 countries involved, Uzbekistan being one of them. And who comes to it are people from these countries, and we train them in leadership. So I have been asked many times to go to Uzbekistan, and I've taught at their startup thing, which is called Ground Zero. And I'm on faculty at at a new university they founded there. It's actually the first private university in Central Asia. It's called Team University, T-E-A-M, University. And I'm accountable for the leadership training and development. And so the guy who is the director of training and development of uh, largest bank in Uzbekistan, it's probably about 30,000 people in the bank. The guy is a guy named Timur, Timur Yadgarov. And Timur is an old friend of mine who was a student who invited me to come to Russia. He lived in Moscow at the time and invited me to come to Russia. And I taught in Russia at Moscow State University several times and actually at Marx-Lenin University where Lenin used to actually train the Duma. And I taught there and trained Timur, who has a doctorate in finance and economics. And he became the president of John King Partners in that part of the world. So when he became the director of training and development for the bank, he called me and asked me, could we figure out some way to do a tribal leadership training in the bank? And so we did. And he kind of rounded up three translators and a team to do the administrative part of it and the 200 people that are in the class. And we were off and running. So that's another project I'm doing. It's, it's pretty complex, but it's really humbling. These people are so hungry to learn. So I'm not inside of a community of people who are been there, done that. I'm inside of a community of I'm hungry for what you have. Well, you don't want to be in communities that, that are been there, done that. Yeah. I mean, where you're you know, at in your life anyway. Yeah, it's kind of what California is all about. My experience in the Western world mm-hmm. is that there is a, a persona-driven, sort of looking good kind of construct which I call stage three. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to crack it open because what we're about is getting to something called stage four, which has to do with stable, effective partnerships that are actually partnerships. Yeah. And the people at stage three pretty much think they've mastered partnership and team and they're insulted that you don't get that. But stage four is where leadership starts. And stage four is where the world opens up and the, the world begins to offer you projects that are occurring at stage five. So if you do the work at stage four of building a stage four group around you of people that are there and they're there because of competency and that everybody understands that their success is dependent upon the success of everyone else, that's one thing. And the second thing is no free riders. And if you really do that and work in that way, and the thing that happens in Central Asia is these people are all tribal to begin with anyway. Yeah. So they are thousands and thousands of tribes. I mean, literally 100 years ago, they were on ponies and with bows and arrows. So they, and they, they, know, they know the impact of free riders culturally, too. They know the impact of free riders. They don't tolerate it. Yeah. They don't tolerate it in their culture. And they know what it is to be working with each other as communities. So, and then... Uh, one of the things that I say to them, I say this to everybody, is I'm not here for you. I'm actually here for the dreams and aspirations of your parents and grandparents and for the legacy and the promises that you've made for what you're going to leave to your children and grandchildren. 
and they get that. And so we have conversations about that and it locks them into, oh, so if I do this, I can stabilize at stage four and that's going to be good for my team. It's going to be good for my group. It's going to be good for my tribe, my community, my children and my grandchildren. How do we solve in this country companies that have almost tailored their culture to like the lowest common denominator because no one wants to offend anybody anymore? I think that's getting worse. It's a hard one because uh, the bricks and mortar companies are really kind of hanging on to what they knew served them in the past. And they don't really... Which is, which is what, would you say? Uh, which is a, a hierarchical kind of system okay. that is based on authority rather than being based on competency. Right. There will always be hierarchies, no matter how it is. But if the hierarchy is not based on competency and merit, then it's based on something else like uh, Old Boy Network or any of the idea it's owed to me. Right. Our culture is a kind of a welfare-driven at this point. You don't have to earn it. It's owed to you. And what we're going to do is we're going to give you from womb to tomb, we're going to take care of you. So that's the way that our culture is drifting that way very quickly. Yeah. And that's not how it was, say, 15, 20 years ago. But that's certainly the way that it's drifting and it's being driven that way. And there's very little that is in opposition to that whole idea of affirmative action, for example. We spent over $4.3 trillion today on affirmative action, and it's just been money that's gone down a rat hole. It really has not help, helped at all. And in fact, if you look at things statistically, they're worse. Is, is, so, there, data, is there good data on that? Oh, there's tons. Yeah. You know, the, the literature is huge on this. And, the, and from very, very reputable Harvard, Stanford, you know, yeah. Penn State, Wharton, all of the good Kellogg, all of the good business <laughs> schools. This is all known, yeah. and yet everybody keeps stepping over it. And so we have, oh, yet another year of voting in another $700 billion in affirmative action programs. I think it's uncomfortable because you don't want to get labeled as a racist. Yeah, that's the trip. You know, in the book, White Fragility, it was distinguished and it was also in any number of books, but it has been distinguished that uh, the most terrifying thing for any person who is white is for them to be labeled as a racist. Because we're in a cancel culture and, you know, all of the things that are going on with the progressive movement and so on like that. So that's the most terrifying idea. And so unless someone is in a place where they kind of are bulletproof in the area of being called white supremacist, white privileged racist, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like they're blocked. You know, it's like a chess move and you're kind of blocked from actually providing anything that's going to support. And we've completely 180'd ourselves from what Dr. King said, where, you know, people should be judged with and interacted with due to the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. No, it's now it's all about color of the skin. Was Martin Luther King, though, for affirmative action programs, though? No. He wasn't? No, no. Martin Luther King was a Republican, by the way. I think I knew that. Yeah, yeah. But he was, I mean, to be fair, though, he was for some government he programs. Was, he was for, let's be fair with each other. But the Civil Rights Act came in and kind of leveled the playing field. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was Johnson who was setting up the Democratic Party for the next 40 years, who actually put the affirmative action programs in. King was not particularly engaged with that. It was more uh, Ralph Bunch. Mm-hmm. It was more uh, Jesse Jackson. It was more people who were kind of the secondary level, Andrew Young, those people who saw this. But the idea, just like every other government program, was that We'll do this for a little while, settled and everything else like that. Then we will sundown it out of existence, but it's never been. It's just automatically added to. It's not unlike our public school system. You know, we Mm -hmm. just keep pouring pouring money into a broken system. Yeah. The one thing with King, though, is, you know, he was interviewed where he would talk about wanting special benefits for African-Americans. I mean, he is on record talking about that, to be fair. Yeah, well, he was an activist. Yeah. You know, that, that was really his case, was that he was an activist. In the big picture, 
what he was saying was, I just want us to be kind of not be about the color of the skin, but about your competency, about your character. You know, and my dream is that we can have our children going hand in hand along at this school together. And everybody, anybody who's a decent human being said, yep, you know what? He's right. Let's go for that. And that's what the Civil Rights Act was about. It did that. Well, I mean, from what I've read, though, I mean, it's both, right? Like he did want people to be valued on merit and not on the color of their skin. But he also did believe in compensatory treatment for African-Americans as well. Yeah, I think it's not something that I would highlight about Martin Luther King. It's true. But I don't think I would highlight that. I think he was just trying to, like, how do we do this and make it fair? Right. Yeah. And, you know, which is fair enough. Well said. You could say people who are proponents of affirmative action are just trying to make things more fair. No, you could say that then. Okay. Now it's bullshit. You could say it then, and you could say it then for the next five or six or seven or eight or nine years. But we are 50 years into affirmative action. It's time for it to be over with. So no, I think it's important. Though. So, so what is the data showing that it worked before, but now it doesn't work anymore? It's an outdated uh, program, what? affirmative action programs. The data that shows that it worked before. Well, you, you what, said it might have been appropriate 50 years ago, but not now. And you said there's well, good data on that. There was out and out discrimination and separation. And there was out and out, no kidding, directly the society was set up so that blacks were put in the inferior position. And then there was, so the Civil Rights Act, which came a year before the affirmative action and all of that, Mm -hmm. the new society, the Civil Rights Act made it illegal for any of that to occur in any governmental situation. And then it extended to business and it extended to whatever. And eventually people kind of went, okay, I need to get with the program and come with the times. And what we need to do is in the marketplace and in the schools and in anything that has to do with government at any level of government, there needs to be equal opportunity. So it was became about equal opportunity, which is what the Constitution is about. Constitution is about equal opportunity. What happened is that with the installation of affirmative action and so on like that, it slowly be- went from equal opportunity to equity. That's an equal outcome. That will never happen. It never has happened and it never will happen. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, it's like we live in a place where people have different talents and abilities. If I want to go play basketball, if I wanted to go play basketball back in the day when I liked to play basketball, I would have been playing at the same time as a Michael Jordan. He is just better. And if we were practicing, I had equal opportunity at the basket, had equal opportunity to make the team and so on like that, because that's how sports are. But if it was equal equity, then what would happen is, no, I get to, you know, whatever it is uh, that we have to disable Michael Jordan if I'm playing against him so that I have equity. So we have an equal outcome. That just makes no sense at all. And yet that is the heart and soul of the progressive message right now. Yeah, no, I can see that. And what would you say to someone that would say, well, if you are in some poor rural community and you've been discriminated against, you may not grow up with the same opportunities, you know, educational opportunities, maybe parents, resources around you, giving that person, you know, who might have slightly on the surface, maybe slightly lower grades or slightly worse grammar or whatever it is than someone equivalent who had all the opportunities and you let that person go to that college as opposed to someone else. I mean, what would you say to that? Because I, I think Uh-oh. that's the argument. And unless, I'm, unless you well, think I, I'm wrong, but I, and I think that's the argument, not... It's pretty simplistic, but what I would say is move. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is not a, a world center for ballroom dancing. And uh, my partner and I and the people around me, we became the best ballroom dancers in the United States. Who's your partner? And my sister. Okay. I had several, but I ended up with my sister eventually. And here was the deal. I taught and I could barely make a living. I couldn't eat it. Mm-hmm. And I was the best in the country time after time, year after year. And But the environment or the ecology of Albuquerque, New Mexico didn't support me. And I was married and we had a kid on the way. And uh, I was looking 
where and, and I wanted to dance. That's what I wanted to do. It was like my vision and my dream at that time in my life. And that's all I lived for. I was a dancer. I looked and I thought, you know, where can I go? I can go to Paris. I can go to London. I can go to New York. I can go to LA. I can go to Vegas. And I thought, I don't want to go to Vegas and be in those kind of shows. I just, that's not dancing as far as I'm concerned. It's just a commercial, whatever it is. And I didn't particularly want to go to New York. By default became LA. And I looked, well, you know what? I like the idea of LA. I'm a sports fan. Why, why LA over New York? Sports. Okay. And a better environment to raise my child. I didn't want to raise my child on the streets in New York, which is where I would be because I'd be around Broadway. So we moved to LA and uh, my wife was a dancer also. And we hooked up uh, there and I did something like 17 years in the big leagues, television, film, live theater, someone like that. And during that course, I was well paid. I was well acknowledged. And I, and I did, I had maybe three weeks of unemployment in the 17 years. So I worked all the time and I worked all over the world. And so I had a wonderful career, really enjoyed it. Never would have happened in Albuquerque because I wasn't where the action was. Yeah. So if you, you know, if you've got something going for you, like one, a friend of mine once said, she was from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dear, I, you know, I, you know, I'll tell you one of my least favorite cities in the country. I find Fort Wayne, other than they have the Forteza coffee shop, which is fantastic. Shout out to Forteza. And they have the Coney Island hot dog place, which is pretty damn good hot dogs. Other than that, I find people are super rude. And not only that, some of the rudest people I've ever on a road trip is in Fort Wayne. And it's not like once. It's like almost every time I go back. That's interesting. But it's like, what do they have going for that? You know, it's like, I feel like people in DC are kind of rude. But like they have kind of a reason to be rude, you know, like, I, you know, it doesn't justify them being rude, but like, you know, they're, they're working on at the Capitol or whatever, and they're hot shots and whatever. I get it. But you live in fucking Fort Wayne. What do you, why do you have to be a jerk in Fort Wayne? Because everywhere else in the Midwest, I find people very kind and very nice, but Fort Wayne, for some reason, assholes. Yeah. Stage two community. Yes. Very much so. Stage two community. And because as my friend from Fort Wayne said, when she got to be 18, she said, I got out of there on the first thing smoking. I'll never remember what she said. And she made it straight. She was gorgeous and talented and she made it out to California. And she, she was an actress. She made a career for herself. The same thing happened to Jackson Fiber from Fort Wayne. Uh, really? Yeah. First thing smoking. They were out of there. You know, so yeah, stage two community. Our life sucks. And so there's, it's pure chip on the shoulder and jealousy. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Okay. Now, a lot of, you know, it occurs not only at the individual level and the tribal and the community level, but it happens at the level of countries. You know, you take a look at countries never go to war with the people that are two countries away. They go to war with their neighbor. Right. And it's always at some sort of function of they got what I want and I'm going to take it away from them. So it's a stage two attacking the stage three and the stage three is, you know, kind of unconscious. You know, we all have these kind of built-in master-slave relationships. And the thing about master-slave relationships is the only one who understands it as a slave. So right now, we are in a huge master-slave kind of relationship in terms of the black-white racial conversation that's happening in the U.S. And the only one who seems to understand and keeps coming up with more bullshit about it are the people who are claiming that they're still slaves, although they're not. You know, it's like white privilege. I was not raised in a privileged situation. But I'll tell you what privilege is, and it's been a lot of literature on this. Privilege is finish school, and it just means high school, finish school, get a quality education, get a job, and get married before you have children. And that's not happening in the black community. And it's not anybody's fault except the people who are not doing that because they were told that 50 years ago, you know, that that's the key. The key, if you do that, that's the key to be your 99, your 90% along the way to you're going to be successful in life and have a successful life. But if you don't do that, that's three things. And if you're not doing all three of those, that's three strikes against you. And you are literally putting yourself where you are and don't whine about it. But yeah. There's a lot of whining about it and making you feel guilty because you're white that they are where they are. No. They need to finish their education, get a job, and get married before they have kids, just like you. 
Can I ask you something? If I could find someone who was like, you know, doing some kind of activism, but that like vehemently disagreed with every point of view you've just put out around, you know, white privilege. Not hard. Not hard. I'm not saying it'd be very easy to find. Barack Obama disagreed. Hold hold, hold on, hold on. Let me finish. Would you be willing to have a conversation on air publicly about that? Like a public conversation? I don't know. Maybe, if, it, if it wasn't antagonistic, I, I mean, I wouldn't let it get antagonistic, but like if well, it was, here's the deal. If we had a conversation where it's just, let's get out the points of view on each side of the thing. Yes. If it's going to be an argument about which is right or which is wrong. I'm not, interested. I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not interested in having that on my show. I just yeah, think I'm, I see. I, one of the inspirations for doing this program, or this show was, I love listening to people like Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan and yeah. they have, they have on people with, all different kinds of point of views. I mean, it do, it almost yeah. doesn't matter what your point of view is. They'll have very intelligent people on with different points of views. And I yeah, love that. And I think it's sad that, especially with Joe Rogan, there's people now, now want to cancel Joe Rogan when he like, he is the most like accepting guy on the planet. But you know, it's like if someone has a point of view that someone doesn't like, regardless of it's whether it's Joe Rogan's point of view or not, sometimes the um, certain people in the media want to shut him down. Sure. So, I'm not interested in having some like free for all brawl on the show. People have turned off the news because I think people are sick of that. But I think people are interested in hearing different variances and different point of views, at least the people that I want to attract. So I wouldn't have, I'm not even saying I'm going to commit to this, but I'm just asking if you were open to it where I have someone on who was intelligent, who all, who you guys weren't attacking each other. So I don't want you to be assholes to each other. Uh, I don't know who it would be. I, I'm sure it wouldn't be hard to find, but I think it could make a very interesting, controversial show. Not to be controversial, but you know, a little bit different. Well, one of the things that I might want to mention to you that Joe Rogan does uh-huh. is he puts somebody on with a point of view, and then he puts another person on with a point of view, but he does not put people with conflicting points of view on his show. Um, that's not true. He he has before. What? He, he, Jordan Peterson and no. Sam Harris. No, there was, who was it? There was some woman, I think she's like a reporter for the New York Times or something like that. And they had very, very different points of views on a lot of stuff. But I mean, like vehemently disagreeing. And it was great. It was, it was great to listen. He's like, he does that on occasion. He'll have someone on that's different, but I'm not Joe Rogan. I mean, and that's my idea. So yeah, well, well, the thing about it is, I have no trouble expressing my point of view, and I have no trouble expressing my point of view inside of it. There's really an interesting thing that showed up. Uh, Eric, I think you'll like this. Yeah, please. Someone distinguishing the difference between a moron and a lunatic. All right, what's the difference? So the difference between a moron and a lunatic is a moron is someone who has a different point of view than you do, but they lay it out logically like it actually you can track it, and it makes sense. It's just he's a moron. It's wrong. Okay. 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 A lunatic is someone who is highly excitable and passionate about what they are. And sooner or later, the word Hitler comes up. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm happy to, I'm happy to have a conversation with someone. And I don't mean this in a bad way, I but know. with a moron, with with moron. <laughs> someone who will actually talk. But and, see, they're going to say, well, I'm happy to have a conversation with the moron as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we start from the same position. Yeah. And in other words, I can totally appreciate your point of view and respect your point of view. And we can uh, lay your point of view out and I, I can say, well, here's where the holes are and for that. And you do, here's where the holes are for yours and everything. What we've done is we've had a dignified, respectful, honorable kind of adult sort of conversation, unwilling to have a conversation with a lunatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's already was my guideline. You didn't even have to say it, but I appreciate what you said. I think it's important in this country that we have smart people who are who with are going to be morons to each other. I'm going to just keep using that. Who are yeah. morons to each other talking. I, I yeah. think so much better. I, and I, people in echo chambers screaming at each other. I, I hate no, it. I, I, could, I couldn't agree with you more. One of the things that we've lost, and it's tragic, is we're losing First Amendment rights to your point of view. Mm-hmm. And it, so you get, can, like Joe Rogan's getting canceled out by people who think, for some reason, they're thinking that he's 
It's not just that he's conservative, that he's alt-right. Couldn't be further from the truth for him. Have you seen, gov- so First Amendment is, is a, the government cannot suppress speech. I'm not saying that people should suppress speech, but it's the government should not suppress, you know, freedom exactly. of speech. Have you seen the government doing that? Because that would technically be losing First Amendment rights, is, is the government saying you can't say these words. Like, for instance, in, in certain yeah. countries, yeah. yeah, like what? What's the law that there, you have seen there, in the United States? It's not the law. It's not the law. It's that'd the be first, that would be a First Amendment. No, 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 no. no. It's the, the First Amendment is being abridged by governmental agencies, the NSA, the CIA, and the FBI, for okay. sure, and without question. And those are governmental agencies. The, uh, the, the First Amendment is being uh, suppressed and kind of deflected, but really suppressed. Hold, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. You, you just made a very big claim. You, you're saying you believe the CIA and the FBI are doing some clandestine campaign to suppress speech in this country. No, I don't think it's clandestine at all. It's overt. Okay. Can you give me some examples? I'm not oh. saying you're wrong. I'm just... I'm, well, do you read the papers? Sure. You know. I read so, quite a few a day. Oh, well, here, wait a minute. So there's a whole conversation that's going on on the right and the left regarding the election. Mm-hmm. And there has been an enormous amount of requests on by the right with an accumulation of evidence to that has been handed to the FBI to ask them to do something about this, to investigate it. And they haven't done it. That's a suppression. Right. And it's a suppression of a political point of view. And what I'm saying is the character of America, as granted by the Constitution of the Bill of Rights, mm-hmm. is about having an appreciation for and a tolerance for points of views that are not your point of view. And I say that that's going away. The actual cancel culture that has arisen in the progressive movement of the, of the Democratic Party has actually canceled people because not because no, of that's, their, that is very apparent. I'm, I just don't necessarily see, I see cancel culture is different than the first amendment. Yeah. Well, that's what you do. The first amendment is specifically about government. Cancel culture isn't inherently but, about government. Yeah. Well, the, the cancel culture is about your right as a human being. And the cancel culture is about your right to be able to express yourself. hundred percent. But I don't know what the government can do to correct that. I don't necessarily think the government should do anything to correct that. I think it's I'm not, like I'm, us. I'm, I'm not saying the government should correct it at all, but I think that there's something about the ability of you as a political expression to be able to say something about it and not be canceled. Otherwise, that's a violation of your rights. So I have a podcast, right? A mm-hmm. non-government, my private property. I can mm-hmm. allow or disallow anyone on my show that I want. Mm-hmm. If I decided to cancel you, which I'm not, if I already decided to cancel anybody, which I wouldn't, I don't care who comes on my show mm-hmm. as long as they're respectful. My choosing to not let someone be expressed on my show, you could that's say... Your choice. Well, it's, that's your choice. Right, it's my choice. But I'm saying I could play into cancel culture. I wouldn't be violating someone's rights because I have a right to deny someone a voice on my show and they have yeah, a right to you, come on or not. You have, that's exactly right. It's an agreement between you and me, for example. Now, it would be different if the government said, you can't say these things anymore. And there's governments that that do that. The United States hasn't done that. Yeah, it would be pretty much if you and I were on, we were podcasting and back and forth and something, what you were about was actually censoring or telling me, that I couldn't say that, or I said, or I did the same thing. But I you. have, but I have a right to do that. You have a right to have an opinion. I, as a private citizen, have a right to censor anyone that I want. Doesn't mean that I will. I won't. I can censor anyone that I want. Just like I can let anyone into my house. Okay. So, so, how far do you want to extend that? Would you like to extend that to Twitter? Um, that's that's a completely different conversation. Because then you're going to say, no, well, no, it's not. Because no, it, it not, is. It's not it a is. governmental organization. It's not. But you could say. A, a governmental organization, but they're censoring. I, under, I understand. And the argument is, one of the arguments, there's a lot of arguments, but I would say the liberty argument is, is Twitter using sort of public bandwidth as a way to do it? And then that would be the argument. I, I, yeah. I, I'm Right. So, but I'm not Twitter. I'm, I have a pod, I just have a podcast. You're not Twitter today. Mm-hmm. But if you were Joe Rogan, would that make a difference? 
he's, he's got well over a million people. But it, are, but it's his it's his show. He can do what he it wants. Is with true. It. it is. If true. Joe Rogan tomorrow decided that he wanted to just only have people in the KKK on his program, he'd lose a lot of people. He'd gain a few people, but lose a lot more. But it'd be his choice, and Spotify would probably yeah. fire him. He would automatically have an audience of less than six thousand. It would be a very small audience. But what, I'm, what I'm saying, my point is, that would not be a violation of the First Amendment if he chose to do that. Yeah, and and I'm not an attorney, nor are you, but there is there is an extension, I say, there is an mm-hmm. extension of the concept of the First Amendment or all of the Bill of Rights that extends to all of us all of the time mm-hmm. as an American, as an American. I spent my first five or six years with my partner at my side saying, chill, <laughs> don't say that, yeah. whatever. But what? What am I saying? You know, but they, you just don't have the access to speak. And I'm fully, I think that's, that is a, honestly a terrible problem in this country that of cancel culture and not being able to have certain environments to speak. I don't want to keep stressing this point, but it was simply that the constitution is what the government cannot do. The Bill of Rights is what the government cannot do. That's right. It is. But private citizens have a choice whether they can do or not do something. A private company has the choice whether they can do or not do something. Until, yeah, in principle and until it infringes upon another. Correct. And, and that's what you'd have the justice system. Yeah. So I'm saying that it's an infringement. I think I don't know that I use that word, but I'm saying it now. It's an infringement of the First Amendment to be canceled, for example. Okay. I can get the point of view. I don't know if I totally agree with it, but I think that's, yeah. I think that's a slippery slope in the other direction because no. then, right? Because then, then if, if I'd rather, I'd rather err on the side of constitutional rights than on the side of somebody's uh, made up point of view. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but I don't know where, what the original point is, of what it is that we were talking about. But, I, I, uh, I don't remember. I was going to ask you how you got into dancing before this came up. <laughs> yeah. So how did you how did you get into dancing? I was in the second grade, and uh, my mother said, "Would you like to take dance lessons?" And I said, "No," because I thought it was girly. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she said, "Okay." And she took my brother and my sister over to the little dance class, and they came back. And I said, "How was it?" And they said, "We really had fun." I said, "Okay, I'll go next week and I'll look." Okay. And so I went the next week and I watched, and the next thing I knew, I was up. And it wasn't dancing. It was about three quarters of the hour was tumbling and acrobatics and everything. And it felt like athletics to me. Mm-hmm. So the way that I was introduced to dance was athletics set to music. And I went, you know what? I really like this. This is a good thing. And then it turned out I had a knack for it because no matter what the deal is with dance or music or any kind of performing art or even fine arts, you can study it all of your life, but unless you really have the knack, you're never going to be there. You're never going to get it. So I had a knack for it and I liked it. And then, you know, suddenly I was kind of the soloist. And then when I was 13, I was. You hit puberty and realized that all your peers were gay except for you and you could date anyone you wanted. Yeah. Well, no, all my peers were, there was, there was really no conversation around gay for me that I was aware of until I was around 18 or 19. Uh, it wasn't like today where they teach you in the second grade. Is it not true, though, that if you are a straight male dancer, you know, you don't have a lot of competition? No, you're, it's like being in a candy store. <laughs> that's one way to put it. Yeah. Well, that's the way John Davidson put it. Who's that? John Davidson. He's a, he's a performer, had his own show for years and so on like yeah. that. Nice, nice guy. He's a kind of a, his own celebrity personality, nice guy. And uh, we were doing a show one time and he looked at me and he said, hey, John, it's kind of like candy store, isn't it? And I went, hmm, yeah, it really is. And good, good quality candy too. High quality, beautiful women. Yeah. It's like you beautiful. can't be in bad shape being a dancer. Well, the thing that, you know. No, can, you, no. can you be in bad shape being a dancer? Wouldn't that be pretty hard? Not a prayer. Yeah. You are within... At any given time, you're within, say, 10 days of being completely razor sharp, the kind of condition that you need to be in to be in the Olympics at any given time. They kind of look, there's there's, there's definitely a similarity. You never allow yourself to get more than about 10 days out of shape. 
you know. And, and all your peer group would say something too, right? Oh, they definitely say something. They say something in an instant. I feel like the dance world's brutal. Uh, I, that, right? I, I danced, I'm six feet tall, and I danced at 172. And when I was at one, if I got up to 174, I knew it. And if I got up to 176, everyone around me was remarking on it. I was like, dance, dancers are mean, right? They're, they're not, they don't hold back. It's not an easy life. It's not a nice life. When, when, they, when, when they come up to you and be like, John, you're looking fat. John, you're looking really out of shape. You're looking disgusting. They'd say that, right? They would say you're fat. The theater world's like that too. They would probably say it behind your back. Okay. I mean, the theater world's like that too, right? Well, the theater world is like that. The theater world is rife with gossip. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I left because it's just knife in the back. And the trouble is I was getting too good at it. At doing that to people. Oh, yeah. I was, you know, I'm a smart guy. And so I had a razor razor tongue. I really kind of slashed my way through because I thought it was cute and I thought it was clever and so on. Like, didn't you kind of, I mean, didn't you kind of have to at least feel like you had to do that? Like that's the kind of the game they play, right? Me, I thought it was, I thought it represented being clever. Right. It was very difficult. It, you develop a habit, you get high on it, you get addicted to it. You know, you do the cut, you say the undermining thing. Mm-hmm. And you get and you get the cheap laugh, and you get addicted to that. And I got addicted to that. I got very good at it, and I got addicted to it. And when I stepped away from that, I began to. I mean, I was really, really sorry for the damage that I'd caused. Yeah, and it cost me. Still like that, isn't it? That world. I haven't been around it in a long, long time, but my guess is it's the same. Yeah. When I was a kid i was in theater camp and even then i picked up on a lot of that eight years old and we were doing that to each other yeah, yeah the it's kind of a defensive thing you what's a, what see, is that about what is that about what do you think comes well from? i think that it has a whole lot to do with stage two trying to become stage three i think it's a whole lot of you know going into the theater getting known and overcoming things and then finally getting to a point where you're recognized and known or not, most people fall away, but a kind of climbing. I had a friend who did very well in building himself to the top of the world of dancer, mm-hmm. a broad, great guy. And I said, what in the world is, you know, what's the formula, Larry? And he said, oh, it's easy. He said, you fuck your way to the middle and you drink your way to the top. All right. Noted. Guys, if you want to be a, a top dancer, now you know what to do. Uh, it doesn't have to do with dancing. It has to do with getting ahead and climbing the ladder and so on like that. And it's kind of a, you know, and I looked at it and I thought, that's a funny and kind of cheap way of saying it. But you know what, when you think about it with the idea of the casting couch, for example, and the Harvey Weinstein deal that was me too, that was all going on, which everybody knew about for sure. Mm -hmm. Like that, you kind of get, yeah, you know, an attractive girl who's a good actress, comes in and she kind of has to fuck her way to the middle and then socialize or drink her way to the top. Yeah. I can actually see it, you know. I think most people can. Yeah. But nobody did anything about it until somebody said something about it, which is, I think the same thing is true with the conversation that is abroad in the land politically about, you know, white supremacy and the racial divide conversation until somebody actually has the courage to stand up and say something about it. And somebody has the courage to stand up and say something about it. Mm-hmm. That is not a, not an alt-right or conservative thing, but just actually something that makes sense and something that actually speaks to our humanity. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the, the whole thing with the pendulum, right? It's like there's a societal issue that's like, you mm-hmm. know, real deep-seated problem in our culture. And we decide we're going to do something about it. The pendulum swings to one direction and mm-hmm. then everyone's afraid to correct it because you're going to look either a racist or a misogynist or whatever word you want to put there. And then people are getting canceled and then you're afraid to speak up because then you're going to get canceled too. And all the stuff happened. And then as you said, someone speaks up, speaks some truth. It feels good for people. Enough people say it and then it's safer to talk about it. And then the pendulum kind of course corrects a little bit and maybe it goes too much the other way a little bit and then someone else comes back and says something else and that's human progress. Yeah, I think that that's I think that's a valid model and I think that that gives 
uh, credence to the power of the things that Dr. King did say. Yeah. When he said, I have a dream and uh, the content of character and the color of skin. You know, Maya Angelou said, people will not remember what you said, but they'll remember how you left, you know, made them made feel. Them feel. Yeah. You know, and between you and me, uh, we have a principle in communication that we talk about from time to time, where the third principle is what I'm accountable for is what pe- how people are left after I'm gone. And you're gone, yeah. So this is kind of like that. We say a lot of stuff, and a lot of stuff we say talk is cheap. But every once in a while, we say things where the words are sacred. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that we want to leave to people. That's our legacy for people, and we want to leave them with. I don't want to leave people with uh, the petty things that I've said, and I've said a lot. Yeah. I want to leave people with the things that are going to yeah. empower them. You know, yeah. Same with you, I'm sure. I think sometimes when it comes to these issues where there's so much emotion behind it and people are quick to label people, I want to say both sides, but it's often more than two sides. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think life isn't necessarily always black and white, and there's a lot of nuances to yeah. issues. And yeah. I think the the problem, and I think part of it also comes down to, so here's another nuance, right? I think part of this comes down to this soundbite culture where our attention oh, yeah. span has gotten, right? Because if you say something, you know, let, you know, break something up for a second. So if you say, you know, there's this whole white privilege thing and I think it's dumb or, you know, whatever you said, it's very easy to take that little soundbite, whether you agree or disagree with that point of view or there's somewhere in between and some nuance, that soundbite can just be turned to your racist end of conversation where you could probably have, if I had, you know, a civil rights lawyer on here and an African-American and a white activist and we all talked and had an interesting conversation, we probably all could learn from each other. You know, oh, so yeah. I, I get hesitant to say, well, that's wrong or that's right, that point of view with a lot of these more cultural issues. You know, I, I could tell you that if you, you know, increase minimum wage to 50 an hour, there will be more unemployment. That's very black and white. But with things like this, I don't know how to say, well, I agree or I disagree necessarily. I kind of see the different views and our, our, our world is in different places at different times. And I think it's a series, it's like the pendulum. It's a series of these conversations of people and I think that's the important thing, people talking to each other and not trying to just, well, you're wrong, so I'm going to shut you up. So what I would say, I think it's very dangerous, actually dangerous for any civilization where we start to get siloed into these point of views and stop talking to each other. And then we start like dehumanizing each other around it. That to me is terrifying. And you look yeah. at that. Uh, did you watch that recent documentary on uh, social media about how you only kind of see the points of views you agree with and kind of scary, honestly. What's the solution? Well, I think part of the solution is what you're providing because you're providing an ecology for someone to have a conversation with you where they can actually lay out their full case and do their moronic or not. They can actually lay out the whole case and that you don't have to argue with them. You can say what more, what more and tease out the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's, that's really the brilliance of Joe Rogan. He does a three yeah. hour thing or Lex Friedman is another one. Who's what would really be the good. word for that? Is there, is there a word that describes that experience? Joe calls it long form conversation. Okay. And I think that that's probably pretty good. You know, he's thought into it and he, he's mastered the deal. But like you book somebody and you want to hear what they have to say. And if they have to get it in in 20 minutes or 30 minutes, it's going to be sound bites. Or in one and, minute on an interview on yeah, CNN or Fox. And it's going to be personality driven and it's going to be anything but. Mm-hmm. Or like you say, well, what you take out of the 20 minutes is the one minute or the, or the little five second sound bite to make the case that I'm a racist or to make the case that, you know, whatever the case is that you want to make. Mm -hmm. But in a case like this, for example, I do not agree politically with, geez, what is the the old man who is the socialist kind of... Bernie Sanders? Bernie Sanders. I don't agree with Bernie Sanders. Well, he would say he's a democratic socialist. Yeah, whatever he'd say. You know, democratic socialist is what they say. Yeah. 
what they said in uh, China before they said what they're saying now. Yeah. But, but, but Bernie Sanders, all that I saw were the sound bites that were actually the whole reason for me not to agree with him because I saw a guy who was arguing and raging. I saw a guy who was saying things that were over the top and, and way down, you know, the road from where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. However, he came on Rogan yes. and he had a three hour conversation and I listened to the guy and he actually, there was a lot like, he's like, mm, I wouldn't mind sitting down with this guy and trading. I just still don't agree with him. Yeah. But on the other hand, it was a, um, a venue in which I could sit and I could listen and I could hear and I could listen through all of the way that he had been treated by the press and how he had been treated, you know, whatever. And I could hear his point of view. Same thing with uh, Tulsi Gabbard. I actually really like her. And, I do too. I, I love Tulsi. Yeah. You know, but I didn't know what to think about her, except that I really appreciated that she annihilated Kamala Harris. Yes. For being a jerk and being a racist. All the things that Kamala Harris was trying to pull to get where she was going. But... When I listened to her in a long time, it was like, wow, I'd really like to be her friend. I, you know, really wanted to be around her. Don't know that I fully support her program, but I, there's a lot that I can mm-hmm. and that I'm on board with. And I would be, you know, happy to do that. So the long, what I'm saying, long way of saying that the long form, I think, in this day and age is way, way better because we've been living in a kind of an ecology that for the last 10 or 15 years, we've been told people have very short attention spans. And if you can't get it done in less than five minutes, don't even bother. Well, now, now it's 15 seconds is the new one. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a, there's a big reason why television commercials are 15 seconds long now. Yeah. You know, and so you do a three act play in 15 seconds, literally. Mm-hmm. So, so what I'm saying is the long form where you can actually have discourse and you can trade ideas, tease it out and so on like that. I think, and the reason I think this is that because it actually gives each other an opportunity to listen to the other person's point of view. Did you ever see the, it didn't happen in three hours. It happened in about an hour, an hour and a half, but there was a conversation between Dave Rubin and Larry Elder. Uh, oh, the remarkable conversation. Yeah. Uh, Dave Rubin is a remarkable interviewer, <clears throat> great listener, remarkable interviewer, very light, very, but uh, he came into the conversation as, as a liberal with Larry Elder, who is conservative, who's a libertarian mm-hmm. conservative. And he came out of that conversation a conservative. So interesting. And it was, and it was stunning to watch the arc of the realizations for him. And it happened in public. And here's a case where a guy owns the program and he had absolutely the right to cut the program, never show the program, whatever. But he, what, what he did to his great, I don't know, credit was to show that arc of realization that he went through uh, in a conversation with somebody who uh, just kind of took him by the hand and brought him to it. And this guy, you know, he's a bright guy who had talked to thousands of people in his lifetime, but it literally happened over maybe a 45 minute to an hour mm. kind of conversation. Well, look, there's certainly a, a demand for, for that. You know, it's not for everyone. There's a lot of people that really just have 15 seconds or they, they don't have a lot of time or whatever, but there's certainly a demand for people who are craving for something more. And I think yeah, that's why I think, my podcasting has blown up so much, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, I think the point is that what we are is we are truly exchanging our ideas yeah. and truly and honestly reflecting and considering what the other has to say. Yeah. So on that note, from this show, what do you want to leave people with? I haven't really talked a lot about it, but this goes back to when I was a ballroom dancer. Okay. I was a ballroom dancer. And if you're a ballroom dancer and you're good at it, one of the things you learn how to do is you learn how to be a partner. You learn the give and take of partnering. You learn what sustains you and holds you together as a partnership. And you learn that what is the greater good, if you will. So I learned about partnering and my life is about partnering and having people in stable and effective partnerships. 
And what I know is that everybody thinks that they can, it's like everybody thinks they're a great driver. Yeah, everyone does. Everybody thinks they're a great partner. And the answer is nay, nay, not really. In fact, we, as a aggregate group, are weak at it. Yes. We have a point of view that there is partnership and I'm way willing to be your partner as long as I'm the senior partner. So partnership becomes a senior partner, junior partner, which is just a nice way of saying master-slave kind of relationship. Another way of saying domination and avoidance of the domination. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in people having a rich appreciation of theirs and their partner's talents, capabilities, gift, contribution in such a way that what they do is they come together inside of an idea that's bigger than both of them and form a stable and effective partnership. And that's what that's what's interesting to me. All right. Well, John, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. I really do. Uh, uh, I wish you well. Well, first of all, I think you're going to do very well in your life anyway. With this podcast project, I think you'll do very well. Just allowing the time and being there and being a guy who's interested in all of those things. So uh, thank you for asking me on. I'm honored. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. Thanks for coming on, John. And I'll talk to you later. Okay. You take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Let's go. Let's go. Five, four, three, two, one. The Average Giant Podcast.